I heard a story earlier this week uh, about a time that N.T. Wright uh, preached on a Christmas Eve service. For those who don't know, N.T. Wright is sort of a scholar, theologian, former pastor from the U.K., and he was teaching on uh, this Christmas Eve night to a fairly large crowd of people, but in the crowd sat a historian, and this historian is uh, a British historian who's well known for not just his scholarly endeavors, but his hate of Christianity. But he was convinced by his family to come for this evening to hear the scholar N.T. Wright speak. And so he said, well, I'm not much for church, but my family wants to go, and here is sort of a contemporary of me, so I am going to go sit in a seat, and I'm just going to study. I'm just going to study what's happening and consider what that says to me. And so when all was said and done and the whole service had taken place, uh, this, this historian decided, I'm going to go find Dr. Wright. And so he worked his way through the crowd and he eventually found him. And, and as, as they got talking, they sort of exchanged some pleasantries. And then uh, the historian turned and said to him, he said, you know what? I have finally figured out why people like Christmas. And I wish I could do a good N.T. Wright accent because he's got this brilliant U.K. voice. But he just turns and he says, well, really, do tell me then. And the historian answered, well, it's a celebration of a baby. And a baby threatens no one at all. So the whole thing is a happy event, which actually means nothing at all. It's amazing that this historian was able to sit there, this man who has done this scholarly endeavor, dedicated his life to understanding uh, how the world has gone about and what that could mean for us in the future, and he had completely, unironically missed out on the purpose and story of Christmas. He had totally lacked grasping what we really think about and celebrate. Because at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, as Matthew introduces the Christmas story, we see that this baby born in Bethlehem actually wasn't so innocuous at all. It posed quite a threat. He posed a huge threat to a very powerful man named Herod. You might know if you study history, if you've read your Bible about King Herod or Herod the Great, who went on to rule for some time in the region of Judea. And so he was placed there after quite a set of conquests and political jockeying and a little bit of uh, espionage and murder. He was appointed by the Roman Senate to uh, the kingship of Judea. But when this baby was born... There was a problem because this baby was prophesied and foretold to be the king of God's people, the king of Israel. And that meant he, as an illegitimate king, had to contend with someone who rightfully deserved his throne. As we know from studying the story, Jesus is a direct descendant of King David. He is someone who is in the royal lineage of the nation of Israel. And so simply by being born, he became a threat. He became a threat to the kingship of Herod. And he goes beyond that, actually, to be a threat to every king and queen of our world from then to today. 
Today I'd like to explore this idea of what it means for Jesus to be king. And I want us to ask the question and wrestle with who is the king or queen of our life? Who's really in control? Who sits on the throne of what our life is and where it's going? And to do that, we're going to look at the story of Jesus and King Herod and some of their interactions. So if you've got a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 2. And here we're going to read this truth. We're going to read the truth that it's the Christmas we celebrate isn't just what we see in an elementary school play. It's not just this happy little time with a fun few songs and a few shepherds and guys on camels who come to give gifts. It's not just about angels, but it's actually about a clash of kingdoms, a clash of mighty magnitude. Christmas really is about God waging war on the powers that stand against him. It's about the king of heaven having come down to earth to overthrow the powers of sin and death, the claims of people's hearts, minds, and souls. And we see it all begin to unfold in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. So let's read that together. Here we read, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, some of us, if we're not so familiar with the story, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod called the Magi secretly and found out uh, from them the exact time the star had appeared. And so he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and try to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now when Herod had realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And so he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. And that was in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. King Herod really was a powerful ruler and he overcame quite a bit of obstacles in order to become the king of Judea. And he actually continually overcome obstacles and was willing to do anything it took 
to secure the throne. This included killing one of his ten wives and three of his sons. All four of those individuals, he felt posed a threat to him on his throne, and so he was willing to even dispatch family, let alone the many others who he felt threatened the throne. And so he was ruthless, but he wasn't unwise to know that there was going to be a problem. If this heir of the throne, if this rightful son who was born should come up and grow up and come to a place where he was a man of stature, he might be able to amass some power and come in and overthrow the throne. I mean, he was there illegitimately. He was there because of Rome. If this baby that was born rose up, he might gather the people who lived in Judea to come and have sort of a coup. And so he had concern. He became upset. He becomes furious, and so he thinks to himself, well, I'm going to deal with it in whatever way possible. So he learns all this after these magi, these uh, astrologers from the east show up, and they come, and they announce to Jesus, or to Herod, hey, we know that the king that has been prophesied has been born, and so he's in your region, and we want to come and worship him. And Herod goes, well, this is bad news that this king has been born, but the good news is I have an opportunity here to get rid of him. And so he says, oh, that's awesome. You have my blessing. You know, if you were someone of power and wealth coming into a region, you'd want to meet with the local officials, in this case, King Herod. You'd want to get their permission to travel through their land and do their business. And, and so Herod goes, yeah, all means go travel, find the one you're looking for who's supposed to sit on the throne, worship him, and then when that time's done, come get me. Come get me because I'm going to go and worship too. And while we don't know exactly how Herod was going to arrange all this, we know it was for sure that he was going to murder this child and probably any other witnesses. Yet unfortunately, because God intervened, unfortunately for Herod, because God intervened, Jesus continued to live, and he continues to live to this very day. Now, whenever we study scripture, uh, the narratives of scripture, and we study what is these sections of history that we have recorded in our Bible, we need to remember two things. First, that this is history. This is something that came true. And so we can look to that and understand more of the history and, and more of the direction of our faith. But we also need to remind ourselves while we're doing that, not just to look at this as just something that happened in the past, but we need to understand and remember the purpose of Scripture. God gave us the whole of the Scriptures, His Word, so that we would go beyond history and learn how to come into relationship with Him as well. We see stories time and time again of places where people missed opportunities to recognize who God is. We see time and time again opportunities that are missed for people to enter into relationship with God in such a way that would change their life for the better. And so as we read scripture, we remember the whole story where God paints how we go from brokenness and sin and death and destruction and sickness to one day God sitting upon his throne. And as we look at all of that together, when we come to sections like this of history, we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean for me? What could God be speaking into my heart? What could God be saying to the situation I find myself in? The Bible makes this unignorable declaration. 
Jesus is king. Not just king of Judea, but king of everything. We're saying he's king of kings. He's lord of lords. There's this idea that Jesus is a global king. But he's not just restrained to our world, but he's uh, freed up for heaven and the earth. Here in Matthew chapter 2, we read that Jesus was born as a rightful heir of God's people. But we're reminded, for instance, all throughout the, the gospel of Matthew, which is really Jesus' followers Matthew's case for why we should worship God as king, that he is a king. For instance, right before his death, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, right before he does that, he says to his disciples, I want you to go into the capital city of our people, and I want you to make a declaration. He says this. He quotes scripture. Behold, your king is coming to you. In Matthew chapter 28, we see that when Jesus, after his death and resurrection, empowers his disciples, he says what? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If he has all the authority, he's got to be king. But it's not just in Matthew's writings. We see it in the writings of Paul and Peter and John 2 in the New Testament. We see it prophesied by people like Isaiah. We see it foretold about in even the writings of King David himself in the Psalms. But one of the most powerful things and one of the places that we're supposed to look to uh, perhaps as, as a, a way to frame all of our understanding of this is written in the book of Revelation. Our last book of the Bible has been written as, as, a, as a foretelling, as a picture of what God would do in the end. And in that, what happened is God revealed to John, his dearest, closest friend, he said, one day when people arrive in heaven, there's something that they will see. They'll see me sitting upon a throne. And as I sit upon that throne, I'll be wearing a robe and on the side of it, it will say, King of kings, Lord of lords. So when Jesus came to earth at this time that we call Christmas, he came, yes, in the form of a baby. We can read that he grew up and he learned. And as he grew, he, he amassed followers and he became friends with people and he challenged people and he inspired others. But all of this he did perfectly in tune with his Holy Spirit so that he could go to the cross, so that he could die, so that he could rise again to reveal the truth, that he's king over heaven and earth, life and death, that he has the power to overcome anything that stands against him. And that's where the problem comes. The problem comes not in Jesus as king, but the problem comes in you and me, in the fact that we continually clash against his kingdom. Even though Jesus has already outlasted Herod, even though he's already won uh, uh, an initial victory that's been secured for the future by dying on the cross and rising from the grave, there's still a lot of us who hold out as kings and queens for our own personal victory. There's king me and king and queen you. And I don't think we really like to think about the Christmas story this way, do we? 
But I think we, we're a lot more alike Herod than we would like to admit. Sure, probably none of us have killed a bunch of kids, at least not that I know of, but every single one of us, we have the kingdom of our lives. We have the throne of our hearts and minds. And most of us, if we're really honest, are willing to do a lot to stay in control. Or we're at least willing to fight against God to keep parts of our life, parts of our hearts, mind, and soul secured for ourselves. Now, I know this isn't very uplifting at first. You know, we like to study the Christmas story and say, hey, I'm going to be like Joseph. I'm going to be like Mary. Look at their faithfulness. Look at how they were willing to give up so much. We like to say, hey, we're like the shepherds. We hear the good news, and we go running to see Jesus. We like to be like the angels. I want to be the one who, who stands up in the heavens and says, glory, 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 holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. But the reality is most of us aren't actually the good guys in our story. We're actually the enemies of God who hold on to our little tiny thrones, and we aren't really all that willing to give up. If we're really going to experience the fullness of the celebration of Christmas, we have to be willing to give up our control. Part of the season of Advent is, is to suspend our memories. To suspend our memories from remembering what Christmas is so that as we come into it, we can celebrate it with fresh eyes. But another part of it is to surrender. To surrender the part of our lives that have yet to receive what Jesus' entry into the world means for you and for me. The reality is we're all Herod. We're all willing to control different parts, and that puts us all on a pathway that's the opposite of what Jesus wants for you and me. Actually, it's really sad that, that, that Herod's story ends in a really terrible way. We find out from the historian Josephus, who lived shortly after Jesus, that uh, three years after Jesus' death, Herod died an excruciating death by illness. And so in the end, even though Herod had fought for control, even though he had tried to reign supreme of being the king of Judea, even though he had combated and uh, committed all these atrocities just to hopefully hold on to a peace, he had to let it all go. Because there was no reality in his claim of the throne. And that should be a warning for all of us. It should be a warning for us, not because we are Herod, but we are like Herod. And scripture tells us that if we're not followers of Jesus, our life will lead to the same sort of death. A death of loneliness and antagonism against God, which means that we lose. Whether or not you are a follower of Jesus or, or, or not, you know that you have those places in your life that you keep the throne. Perhaps for some of us, even if we aren't followers of Jesus, we still have those places where we feel that we have a, a career that's going in one direction, but we actually know that God is saying, I want you to get out of that lane and go somewhere else. This isn't good for you. We have other people who are, who are maybe choosing to listen to how they should live their life and how they should respond to the work of God in their life because they're afraid of their family or what their family believes and they're not willing to surrender themselves to what God is calling for 
in their lives. For others of us, it's unhealthy relationships with people who are taking us away from God and we're unwilling to surrender those things because we think that that relationship validates us most. When in reality, that relationship is going to take us nowhere good and instead it's going to take us away from the one who really does bring us value and worth. We all know that these things lead us to certain death. In 1 John 2, 15, we read this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If I were to say it, do not allow the world to love you and to be the king of your life. And John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Herod loved his kingdom. You and I love that thing or that person. We have that, 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 that piece of us that we want to have and to hold. Because sometimes it feels good, doesn't it? Right? Sometimes we have those patterns of sin and we know they're wrong, but man, I sure love it. And so we have, or we try to hold on. But the question is, where does that kingdom, where does allowing that thing to drive your life lead you? You know. You know, even if you love that thing. You know, even if you allow that that piece of your life to be in control, even if it feels good on the surface, maybe even if it allows you to feel a certain uh, amount of success, even if it makes you look good to people outside of you, you know that within it there's emptiness and brokenness. And you know that it'll never succeed because you know you are on the throne. And you know where you'll take things. And scripture tells us that whenever any one of us does this, we combat God and that leads us to separation from us, from him and certain death. And even for those of us who are followers of Jesus, while we'll never be fully separated from the love of God, we know that those things and allowing that control of our life drives a wedge between God and us. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do with this? I mean, any one of us who've been following Jesus for a certain period of time has, has that, that, that fight that takes place in us, right? The Apostle Paul says, uh, there's things that I want to do and I just don't do them. And there's things I don't want to do that I just keep on doing. And every one of us has that struggle. What do we do? Well, there's an old Scottish philosopher and professor, Thomas Chalmers, who wrote on this. And he said this. He asked that same question. He said, how shall the human heart be freed from its love for the world? Or I might be inclined to say, how can we be free from our love of our kingdom so we can experience all that God has for us? Now Chalmers, as he searched out an answer to that, ended up considering what it meant to have faith in Jesus and what the power that Jesus could have over any aspect of our life. And he came up with this idea, I believe it's his idea originally, that he turned the expulsive power of a new affection. A lot of us try to replace things that we like to be in control of or that feel good when they're in control of us with uh, really unsatisfying things. And we always know that when we try to substitute something with something else, uh, unless it's better than, it never works. Like, I have tried so hard to eat pizza with a cauliflower crust. 
Ghost broccoli is the worst vegetable. Try as hard as I might, I can never choke that thing down because it's just not as good. But I'll tell you, I can eat regular crust pizza. I, uh, instead of regular crust pizza, if you give me a cheese stuffed pizza, mm, I'm in. I'll replace it any day. And I, I use that sort of in a silly way, but we know that when we replace something with something better, it has the power to win over our affections. All of us who are, who are married at some point in our journey have had this moment where we've said, hey, I really like men or women, and then we find one man or woman, and we go, wow, this one replaces all the rest. Hopefully, that's where our marriages are at. We all have those things that we know, that when we find something to have as an affection that's greater than the thing that we want to replace, we actually have no problem doing it. And so Chalmers says, no matter how try hard you will try to carve something out on your own, you simply won't be able to. Instead, what you have to do is allow the Holy Spirit to speak into you to reveal who God really is, what it really looks like for Jesus to be on the throne, and then you will know that that is so much better. And that will allow you to carve out room on the throne. And that's been true in my life. That's been true uh, when I have had different consistent patterns of sin in my own life that I've struggled to control. I remember going on a retreat. It was about, I think it was about, I was in the beginning of 2020. It was right before COVID happened. And, and I was really struggling with this particular pattern of sin in my life. And it was really frustrating me because you know, it's that thing that where you're enticed in and then you, you end up there and then at the end you're like, what did that left me, leave me with? Shame, some guilt. Oh, man. And I remember wrestling with the Lord and I just went to him one day before I went on this retreat and I said, Lord, I just need you to be better. I know it intellectually that you're bigger and better than this thing, but I have yet to receive that. And so time and time again, even if I know that I shouldn't go to this place, I know I will, because for some reason my heart lies to me. And I was very fortunate that God was so gracious to me as I went on this retreat, as I wrestled with this problem that had grown deep inside of me. As I read some scripture, I was confronted by something the Apostle Paul said that spoke directly to this situation, and I was amazed. I was broken down. I wept like a little baby. I journaled for several hours, and in the end, I thought about that sin. And I went, I don't want it anymore. I'd be lying to say that I've never struggled with it anymore, but what's been incredible is that that pattern of sin has become a pattern no more. The affection of God and what God has spoken into me has replaced that thing's spot on the throne of my life. Now, I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what taking control over your life, but I can promise you this, that there is power in the name of Jesus. And if you allow his spirit, if you genuinely seek it, not, not out of this sense of I'm going to manipulate God, 
Not of this sense of, I'm just going to go there because I know I should as a Christian. But if you genuinely go to God in desperation and say, God, I need the good news that only you can bring. I believe that God has the power to break control that thing in your life. And when we receive that, we, we really embrace what Jesus said. Jesus spoke of this. He promised us this in a manner as he constructed for us a philosophy, a way of thinking. It's why he said it uh, to his disciples. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man has found and covered up. Then from his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus makes this promise. When you come and you really understand what I bring, you're going to be willing to cut it all loose. And you're going to be willing to, to sell the farm so that you can have what only I can bring. When we really discover what it means for Jesus to be king, we realize that things are so much better. That's the beauty of who Jesus is as a king. You and I as kings and queens, we screw it up, we make it ugly, we, we just mess things up time and time again, not just for ourselves, but for those we're in relationship with. But Jesus, when he comes in, he brings offerings of restoration and life. Most of us, when we're kings and queens, we live like Herod. We look for how we can stay in control and we leave behind a bloody mess. But when Jesus is king, we see that he comes as a very type, different type of king. He comes at first with gentleness and love. Right? That's what we see in the baby Jesus. And as Jesus grew and as we watch how he moved throughout history, we realize that he grew up to bring incredibly kind words. He spoke to people who were lonely and he brought them into relationship. We see that the people were sick and, and needed healing and he stepped in and brought them wholeness. We see that there were people who were lost and wandering and he spoke direction and truth into their life and he said, this isn't all done without me. And because he knew that there was that gap between us and himself, he offered himself willingly God said, death is deserved for everyone who goes against my throne. But even though I mean that, I love you anyways. And so Jesus came as king to die for you and me, to take on the penalty of death for waging war against him. And then not only did he take it upon himself, but he defeated it and left it in the dust. So that you and I, even though we will die, of physical death like Herod, we will have what Herod never had. We will get to experience spiritual life and a physical resurrection. We will live in the manifest presence of God in a new heaven, and eventually on a new earth, and we will get to live under the life that his kingship brings. What do you want to choose? What do you want your solution? for your life to be. I think the thing that we have to hear is the same thing that Jesus spoke to that man who was in his 30s who sat paralyzed on the doorstep. As he came up to him, Jesus said, do you want to be well? For the next couple minutes, I want us to consider that question. What does it look like to be made whole? When Jesus comes as king, he doesn't just come for a piece of us, he wants the whole. Jesus wants every part of you and me, heart, mind, body, and soul. 
And he says, there can be no more of you or anything sinful in control. It's all got to be under me. And so I want us for, for the next couple minutes just to pause and to reflect on what part of our lives we've yet to surrender to him. What part of us do we keep control of or do we tuck deep down away because we think at some point it's going, its control is going to be good for us even if we know it won't. And so for the next two or three minutes, and I know for some that's going to feel like an eternity, some of us that's going to feel like way too short of a time, we're just going to stop. And so we're going to play some gentle music in the background and we're going to lower the lights and I would just love for, for, for the next two, three minutes for you to just wrestle with the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, what are you calling for me to surrender from my kingdom to yours? Let's think about that and let's pray.